So we're going to uh, learn today a very interesting piece of recent Jewish history. When I say recent, it's not super recent. It's 1970, which is uh, still current uh, in historical perspectives. Um, So on September the 6th, in the year 1970, right before Rosh Hashanah, like during the month of Elul, there were four commercial aircraft that were hijacked and forced to land in Jordan by a radical Palestinian group known as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or the PFLP. I don't think that they're in business anymore. Um, But it was uh, a very frightening time in general. That period in in history, the Arabs were, were hijacking many planes but to do four at one time was like a, something that I think was unprecedented. And of course, they were trying to uh, get attention for their cause, which probably was uh, you know, to release Palestinian prisoners from, uh, from Palestine, from Israel. And this would be a horrific ordeal for the world in general. But for Torah jury, there was an especially... It was especially significant and especially frightening because on one of these four planes was one of the leading G'daylem in Klai Yisrael, Rav Yitzhak Hutner. Rav Yitzhak Hutner was the uh, Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin. He lived from 1906 to 1980. So I just told you that he didn't die during that hijacking, right? Because the hijacking was, as I said, in 1970. He died 10 years later, so that was a little bit of a, of a spoiler alert that, um, you know, Baruch Hashem, he, he survived. Not only was he Rosh Shiva of Chaim Berlin, he was also on the Mayatzis Gedele Taira, the leading rabbinical body of uh, the Agudis Yisrael of America. He was known to be a brilliant, brilliant scholar, a Talmud Chacham, an author, of uh, the very popular set of Svarim called Pachad Yitzchak. Pachad Yitzchak is a set that he wrote on Yamim Taivim. Every volume is, another, is on another Yantif, uh, and it's written beautifully, very poetically, with his, uh, you know, his poetic soul and his very talented pen. Uh, his daughter, I don't think it's a secret, Rebetzin Buria David, who is the head of BJJ Seminary in Israel, uh, She's his only child. He only had one child, a daughter. And she was on that flight as well with her husband, Urbanus and David, who today is also one of the great G'daylim in Klai Yisrael. He lives in Eretz Yisrael with his wife, and uh, he needs her for Shlema. I think she really does. Um, and in addition, there were certain students, several students that were traveling uh, with him as well. Uh, there were two Svardik uh, G'daylem on the flight, also Rosh, the, um, the Harari Rafal brothers, uh, Rabbi Yankov Drillman, who is a uh, very well-known um, Torah scholar. Uh, he's a Rashiva, and he's, uh, I happen to have been very close with him in Chaim Berlin. He was, uh, you know, uh, you know, I was extremely close with him, and he was a uh, you know, very, very big genius. Remember I was telling you the story during the daf about the two... Uh, Choices versus three choices, or the dating, and so that was him. He was a, he was a genius of a of a mind, and uh, one of the leading lamdanim in the world. Anyway, so you can imagine what was going on in Klal Yisrael at that time. 
when you had uh, so many Chashuva people and the Rashiva of uh, Chaim Berlin on top of it who were suddenly found in a situation that they were taken captive, taken into, has, into har- Arab hands. Um, and there was a very big debate about how to deal with it. If you can, you can imagine what was going on in America, like to try to free him and to try to use the back channels to use any influence that could be done. On, on one hand, you wanted to try to you know, show that he has to be released. On the other hand, if you make too big a tumult about it and they realize the gem that they have in their possession, they could ex- exact, uh, you know, extract a, a much greater price for him. So this is always an issue, going back to the times of the Rishayim, about how to ransom people. If you have a, maybe back to the times of the Gemara even, if you have a situation that um, you, know, you have a very important person that, uh, of course, the, the most famous situation was who? Marama Brattenberg, excellent. One of the leading, leading G'dayle Hadar. He was taken prisoner in a, in a prison called... Uh, I think it was called uh, Eisenstadt or Eisenstein, and uh, something like that. And he was, uh, for many, many years, he was incarcerated, and he forbade the Jewish community to raise ransom, you know, to, to raise money to ransom him because he was afraid that this would start a precedent that whenever people want to make a few million dollars, you just hop a leading rabbi and you, uh, you know, you threaten that we're going to kill him until the money is gotten. So he was, so he stayed. He, he actually, because of his own psak, he had to sit in jail. He could have been released. They could have found the money easily, but he refused to do that. And he, uh, he sat, I think, for maybe ten years or more in this terrible dungeon of a of a prison, uh, and he suffered. He died in in prison, the Maram Rottenberg, and. Um, Eventually, they buried him, and eventually, somebody, um, a yid by the name of um, Alexander Wimpfner, I believe it was, uh, he uh, he had the he raised the money, or I mean, I think he used his considerable wealth in its entirety just to ransom him. That's that's mysterious nefesh. That's one thing if you're a billionaire and you give a million dollars. It's another thing if you're you know you're worth three million dollars and you give all your three million dollars to to ransom somebody. That's a very big godless. That's what he did, and he wanted just to be buried next to him. And Adayim, if you go to the cemetery um, in uh, I believe it's in Worms. I'm not sure about that, um, but wherever it, I think it's in Worms. But they have this famous pair of gravestones. One is the Mam Ruttenberg, and then the person who, who redeemed him buried side by side. Anyway, but that was a, a digression. Um, Rav Huttner was on this plane. Uh, it was stifling. The heat, it was in the middle of, uh, it was in Jordan, in the middle of a desert in Jordan. And it was like sort of summertime, so you, you know what it's like if you're in Eretz Yisrael during you know summer, early September time, very hot in a regular climate. Kama Vakama in the in the desert of Jordan. Suffice it to say, there was no air conditioning on the plane. I doubt that there was even uh, the bathrooms. I'm sure were not working on the plane either. And it was in these conditions that Rav Huttner, um suffered um, for for, I think it was two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Jews around the globe 
they, uh, they prayed, they daven fervently for the Rosh Hashiva's safe return. And at the same time, there was intense diplomatic efforts made to release him from, capti- from captivity. And there was a, it was a, there's a lot of history that played out in that desert and, and in general in, in Jordan at the time. But the wonderful news was heard that the Rosh Hashiva and his entourage were out of harm's way eventually. And great joy and relief swept through the terror world when Rav Huttner arrived home just before Rosh Hashanah. An interesting uh, PS to the story is that when the Rashiva landed in, uh, I think it was in JFK airport, I don't, think, I don't know if it was called JFK at the time, but wherever, it, when he landed, um, so they had a band that was arranged to play music. A lot of Yeshiva Bachram came, and they were going to make it very happy. But Ramesha Feinstein Paskin, that they should not be playing music, because not everybody was released. There were still some people in captivity, or they, were, they had not yet come home. And he said, until they come home, it's not appropriate that you should, you should celebrate. It was premature, and I'm sure after they all came home safely, uh, then and only then did they celebrate. It's interesting, one more, another footnote is that um, I once heard a speech by another person that was on the plane who wrote a book about this whole incident. His last name is Rab, R-A-A-B. I'm trying to remember his first name, but I can't right now. He's from Chicago originally. I think he, for a while, I don't know if he's still there, was working for Turo College in Manhattan, but he was a teenager that was learning in Eretz Yisrael that year. I think he was in Shalavim. I'm not positive or Karen Biyavna possibly. I'm not certainly, I'm not, I'm not certain. But he was on that very same flight. And at one point they removed, they released a, f- a few of the captives um, and they took them off the plane. One of them was Rabbanus and David. Another one was this, this Rob who wrote a book about it. If you're interested in reading it, I, I would recommend uh, you know, taking it out of the library. I don't know if we have it here, but in general, the library. Did you know that you can actually take order books from other libraries to be sent to here if we don't have it in our library? I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's good to know. Uh, I use them all the time because we don't have such an extensive library here, but if you tell the librarian you know, what you need... They, they'll either, you know, they'll order it for you or sometimes they'll even buy it for you. They, they do that for me. I don't know if that applies to students, but that definitely applies to faculty. Um, so in this book, and I heard him speak about it, he describes how Rubianus and David, they, um, the Arabs took them to another safe house and they gave them, I, I think he took off the plane Rabbeinu, who's Rav Huttner's son-in-law, and he's the current Rosh Hashiva in Paris. It's like he he put he took like little packets of salt, you know, like in these meals on the plane, they have these little packets you tear open of salt. He had that, that in his pocket. They also he also took a little bottle of water, and then when they were they they gave them like some bread to eat, and this Rob describes like where Rabbeinu and David he pulls out like a little bottle of water. To, I'm sure he could have used it. He's probably very thirsty. He used it to wash his hands before the bread and for my machrenim, I think. And also, he used the salt to, you know, to, dump, to dunk the bread into salt. And he was amazed. Like, even in a time of crisis, you know, when all, everything is breaking 
open and, you know, it's a horrible time. You know, you figure, okay, you know, you can cut corners a little bit. You don't need to be makbin on salt. You don't need to be makbin on mayamach reinim. You don't. But how he was medactic even then in, in mitzvahs is, uh, is a great testament to, um, to Rabbianus and David. Now, we have one picture, because I, I wrote about this in a few different books, and I always wanted a picture of Rabbianus, and I figured, like, somebody had to cover this. You know, it might have been Time Magazine. This is a big story. Four separate planes being hijacked. You think, figure, like, there's probably one picture of the Rashiva of Chaim Berlin at one point, either, you know, before the, before the hijacking, during the hijacking, after something... I never found the picture. It was like a time, all the Associated Press. You'd think that somebody covered it. I, did, I wasn't, maybe you could do better research than I. I wasn't able to find anything. But a few years ago, there was a, a Jewish magazine that we bought. It was called Zman Magazine. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's published in Muncie. Um, it's a very interesting magazine. Uh, from And in that magazine, they had a, happened to have had a story about reporters hijacking. And in that story, there was a single picture of Rav Hutner on the flight. Somebody had a camera apparently on the plane. And they took a picture of Rav Hutner with Rav Yenis and David sitting next to him. And they were learning a safer. And I don't know how, but I, I think maybe in the article, in the caption, it describes that they had one safer with them. And that was the, uh, the Chuvas Achiezer, which was the response, the halachic response uh, of Reb Chaim Eisergrudzenski, the great Gadol, the, the Rav of Vilna. And um, they were sitting together and learning, which is also a great testament that even, you know, you talk about, like, we, if the air condition is not working so well in the base madrash, or if it's too cold, or if it's too, uh, you know, during the summer, or uh, during, the, during the winter, or if we're not feeling 100%, or we didn't have our coffee, right? It's very hard for us to learn. Here, they were sitting on an airplane in the, heart, in the hot tarmac, of Jordan, they didn't know if they were going to get shot any second from then. They had no major food to. If they had food, it was you know they didn't have. I don't know. They they were they they didn't have too many supplies. Probably um, the bathrooms probably weren't working too well, if at all. And they had the ability to sit and learn very difficult shuvas together. And to me, that's like a, an incredible testament to the greatness of Rav Hutner, the greatness of Rabbanus and David, and remarkably after the, and I'm going to show you the picture in a second, but remarkably after the hijacking was over, it was Arab Rosh Hashanah. Rav Hutner uh, was in yeshiva that Rosh Hashanah, and he gave a, he gave a mimer, which is his formal shir on a yantif, uh, and he gave it on the topic in, in the Chaim Berlin Maimarim, and these types of... Uh, Speeches, they don't give a speech like, you know, telling, talking about current events. They'll never, even though there was so much to speak about, that's not the way the Chaimelin is doing. They speak about, you know, general Chazalin, they, they, a lot of deep philosophical thought with Maral's, Vichule, and then they might like allude to something like a, an idea, but they'll never say Beverish, a hijacking, they'll never talk about it. So Rav Hutner spoke about B'nai Yishmael. And about how the Arabs who come from Ishmael, um, you know, why they're so angry, why they hate the Jews so much, why they hate Klal Yisrael so much. And he brings beautiful rayas from certain psukim, the difference between B'nai Ishmael and B'nai Esav, that, you know, Ishmael, Esav was able to inherit a certain 
land. They're like Harseir was Esav's. Yishmael never got, they were nomads. They were Arabs. They were like the Bedouins, like they were just traveling. They never got the land that was promised to Avram Avinu. Esav got a certain section of, of land, wherever that is in Harseir, but Yishmael didn't. So Yishmael always has this like resentment a seething resentment towards Kla Yisrael because they, they feel that we took away their inheritance. It's not such a chiddush. We see that, right? They, they don't make any bones about it. They want Israel back. They want, you know, they want that country back because they realize that they, even though today, obviously, they have real estate all over the Middle East, the Arabs have, like, how many states? 20-something states. So, you know, we have one little state, but they want that. That's, they, they feel deprived of that homeland that they never had because it was given over to Yitzchak. And this is, if you want to read about that Mimer uh, in more detail, look in a, a very good safer called Great Jewish Speeches, and you'll find it there. I don't know if I have this picture of Hutner in there because I think I got it afterwards, but this is the picture of Hutner on the plane during the hijacking, sitting and learning. So we're going to do one more. This one is about the stipler. I don't think we ever spoke about it. The stipler, of course, was uh, one of the G'dayle Adar. He was the father of who? Chaim Kanievsky. Very good. So the, um, the stipler lived from 1899 to 1985. He was a rising star in Navardag Yeshiva. Yeshiva was... Who would you say if Navardag was on one side of the Ashkafik? Slabotka, right? There was like, you know, uh, you know, if you have two opposing philosophies in the yeshiva world, it would be Slabotka versus Navardik. Uh, Navardik had a very, uh, very different, dif- different approach than Slabotka. Slabotka, let's start with them, uh, was founded by the altar of Slabotka, of Nassim Finkel, and he was a master mechanic. He had Talmidim in his yeshiva, and he worked very closely with each and every one of them. He understood them. He understood their talents. He understood their challenges. He understood the potential that each of them had in their own different, unique way. And he worked day and night to develop that inner perfection, potential that every Talmud had until he was able to, uh, to produce greatness. And his approach was something called Godless Ha'adam. He, he constantly... Um, spoke about how great man is. Man is great. Adam Arishan was great. Adam Arishan himself was, a, was a, a giant, literally and figuratively. He spanned the entire universe. He was able, when he stood up, his head hit the, hit the Shamayim. That's how tall he was. And when he lay down, his head was on one side of the world, his feet was on the other. He was beautiful. He was brilliant. He was able to know all of the Kabbalah, all the Taira. That's really what a human being is. A human being is pure greatness. And we're also, we're from Adam also. It's true, we were shrunken down a lot after the Chet. And, you know, it's, things have been going down, downhill ever since. But still, we are Adam also, and we have greatness in us. And because of that, he pushed his Talmidim to, to really uh, uh, realize their greatness. And he was able to achieve uh, amazing results. What were the results of Slabotka? Well, people like Rav Aaron Cutler, people like Rav Shach, Rav Ruderman, Rav Hutner that we just spoke about, um, Rav David Leibowitz, and uh, many, many others. I could keep Ryakov Kamenetsky, um, 
many, many G'dayle Yisrael came from Slabatka. Practically all the G'dayle Yisrael actually came from Slabatka. Because he, this was his shita, you are great. And when you keep on telling somebody day and night how great they are, eventually they begin, begin to believe it, and they, they, they bring the greatness out. Navardik, on the other hand, was very, very different. Slavatka was one single small yeshiva. Navardik, which was founded by the altar of Navardik, Rabbi Yosef Yezel Harwitz, he was a very interesting personality. If you want to read about him, Arts Girl recently came out with a, with a biography. We have it downstairs on the side of the base medrash in the Arts Girl, in the, in the Gedalian biographies. Um, he started late in life. I think he was a, a, a a pharmacist or some, he was a businessman, and then he eventually decided he wanted to start yeshivas. But he didn't just build one. He built a a network of yeshivas. I believe he had about 70, 75 yeshivas all throughout Russia, all throughout West, Eastern Europe. He had, imagine building 75 yeshivas. You know what that means? Imagine building one yeshiva. Try, go, go ahead, try to build one yeshiva. Raising the money for it, you know, keeping... Uh, the payroll going, the budget going, uh, you know, making sure that everything is working in that yeshiva, the bathrooms are working and the sinks are working and the heat is working and the, the, the food is there. Now try doing that 75 times and that's what the Alta Slabotka did. What was the shita of Navardik? I'm sorry, that was the Alta for Navardik. What was the shita of Navardik? What was their opinion? They didn't speak about Godless Adam so much. What they were saying is that we're nothing, Namash, the polar opposite of Slabatka. If Slabatka felt that man is everything, your sheer greatness, Navardik taught that man is really very little. Man comes from dirt. He goes back to dirt. He's not much in between. Not much, there's nothing to have gaiva about. Don't be so arrogant. Uh, your time is coming soon. It's going to be over before you know it. This was the Musser of Navardik. They Mamish believed that they were nobodies. And... You know, I'm not one to paskin, you know, which one uh, succeeded and which one failed. It's very hard to say Navardik failed. They had 75. Unfortunately, the, the Nazis came to power and they killed everyone came out in, in all the Navardika branches uh, and many in the Slabotka as well. But Navardik um, did have a few very famous personalities emerge from it. And perhaps the most famous um, is the Stipler. The stipler was somebody who uh, was from that system of Vardik. Not only was he from the system of the Vardik, but he also became one of the senior rabbeim in one of the Navardic branches. And he was, uh, and, and you could see on his face that that attitude of Yerushalayim, that pure, uh, you know, I'm nothing, the Musser, you know, how you have to always like push yourself down and not hold of yourself and, and just fear God all day and all night. That's, that was on the stipler's face. He was a product of that. So in this picture, oh, so let me tell you, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, who was Rashiva of the Mir, when he was a young student learning in Grodno Yeshiva, he went to visit his uncle, who was the Rosh Hashiva, one of the Navardika yeshivas in the city of Bialystok. There were so many Navardika yeshivas that they had to be called by the branch that they were in. You know, Lahabdil, like, you know, University of California, right? California is a very big state, so they have University of California in 
Berkeley, or they have University of California in, uh, I don't know, Santa Monica. There's, right? That's Lahabdul Elf, Avi Abdul, is how it was with Navardi. You had Navardic in, in Bialystok. You had Navardic in uh, Navardic. You had Navardic in different branches all over. So one of the Rashivas in, in that branch of Bialystok, whose name was Ravram Yafin, a famous genius, and Rav Chaim Shmulevitz was a nephew. So there was a crowded base medrash, and Reb Chaim, young Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, asks his uncle, the Rashiva, tell me who is the best bacher in the crowded base medrash. So his uncle, Reb Yafin, pointed to one bacher and said, you see him? He is the greatest lamdin that we have. He then singled out another bacher noticed, and noted he is our biggest masmid. Of a third student, he said he has the broadest knowledge, he has great bekiyas. So Reb Chaim continued to probe, but who is the best? The Rashiva looked toward another student whom he had not previously indicated, and he said, he is. What makes him the best, asked Reb Chaim? He is the greatest mevakesh. He wants it the most. He's the greatest seeker. No one wants Torah more than he. Meaning, he might not be the biggest masmid, he might not be the biggest Eloi, he might not be a super genius, he might not be, uh, you know, the biggest, uh, um, he might not have the greatest bikiyos, but he's a mavakish, he's hungry for knowledge. And so he is the best. Who was that student that was pointed out? Well, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to understand, to know that this was the young Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, known as the Stipler. And within a few short years, he rose to such heights that he was appointed by Rabbi Yaffin in 1926. Again, how old was he? He was born in 1899. He was only 27 years old. That's pretty young. As a head of the Nevardic Yeshiva in Pinsk, another major terror center. And he remained in this position until he made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael in the year 1934. So he was Rashiva there for about eight years. Then he moved to Eretz Yisrael. Where did he move in Eretz Yisrael? B'nai Brak. And that's where he uh, and his brother-in-law, who was his brother-in-law? Who was this type of his brother-in-law? The Chazanish. Chazanish. And, and eventually his son, Reb Chaim Kanievsky. And right, so many G'daylam in that family uh, of the Kanievskys uh, they settled eventually in Eretz Yisrael in 1934. So in the olden days, it was very in vogue to make like f- photo montages in general, and specifically of yeshivas. So if you look in, if you look in a lot of the um, old, um, I don't know, yeshiva books, if there was like a memory book of the yeshiva, you'll find a lot of times, and certain yeshivas even today do this, they'll have a whole poster and on the poster, they'll have little pictures of every student in the yeshiva. And on the top, they would have a bigger picture of the Rashiva. And then the Rabbeim, also a little bigger size. And maybe they'd have, sometimes they'd have the names on the reach in every one of them. But that was a very popular. And then they would make like all the pictures into like a beautiful, um, they would graphically, which was incredible, before the age of computer, that they were able to make it into like a Magin David. So what I did was I took one of these photo montages of the yeshiva, of the Navardi yeshiva in Pinsk, and the stipler was featured prominently in the center left, and I made a little, I had my graphic artist make a little white circle around, and then you'll see the blow-up picture be below of the stipler, what he looked like as a young man, and you'll see on the other side of the spread what he looked like 
as an old man, but this serves as a reminder to what can be achieved in Torah by those who but seek it the most. Meaning, the stipler became great because he wanted it. He wasn't, don't ever think to yourself, well, I'm not a genius, and I'm not, I don't have a great bekeos, I don't know, I don't know that much Torah. If you want it, you can have it. It's yours for the asking. You just have to want it. That's the problem. We don't want it. But if you want Torah, if you want to be a Tamil Chacham, then there is no doubt in my mind that anyone in this room, including myself, could be a big Tamil Chacham. Because that's what we find constantly. The Chazal speak about it, and, and we see many, many uh, cases, and we could talk about those in future weeks if you want. But there are many cases of G'dayli Yisrael that didn't start out brilliant, and they didn't start out to be, uh, you know, with, with tremendous knowledge base, but they worked very, very hard because they wanted it so badly, and that was really the stipler. And the stipler came to Israel. He is the most prominent, possibly, um, example of what Navar de Geshiva produced. He was, you know, outnumbered on the Slabatka side of the page, probably, because we don't know so many people. A lot of them were killed out during the war, if not all of them, most of them, but uh, the stipler Baruch Hashem survived, and from him, uh, we have greatness in Tyra.